Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you're trying to explain an experience that you've had or you're trying to explain something that recently happened to you but you can't find the right words you're going to capture that so you'll say something like it's kind of like and then you'll try to give an example well the bible does that too The Holy Spirit led and carried along and inspired faithful men who wrote, and they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write, so that what we have written in Scripture is the very Word of God to us. And at the same time, the biblical people and the biblical authors sometimes use use pictures and illustrations and metaphors to describe things that we can't fully describe or understand on our own. In fact, Jesus did this throughout his ministry. Jesus would say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field. We know that the kingdom of heaven is a lot more than just a treasure buried in a field. Or Jesus would say, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed of a tree. Or it's like a lump of of dough. Well, we know that the kingdom of heaven is, is, is more than just a seed or a lump of dough. And yet these are kind of illustrations, they're pictures that the Bible uses to describe something that otherwise we would not be fully able to understand. A theological term for this is accommodation. God accommodating our limited intellect by describing himself in certain ways by describing the realities around us or the kingdom of heaven in certain ways. And our text this morning does the very same thing. In fact, as we're going to discover, a significant theme here is about two travelers who fail to see Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus, at least not at first. And the turning point of this entire narrative is when their eyes are opened. But there's something more. Yes, this is is a story about two people who see Jesus with their eyes, but it's about their physical eyes being opened, but it's also about their spiritual eyes being opened. They see Jesus for who he is, not just as a man whom they had just been talking about, oh yeah, I identify that that is the man that we have just been talking about, but they see that he actually is the Messiah. He actually is the very one that they had been hoping that he would be. So Luke, our author here, makes it clear that their physical seeing points to a deeper seeing, another kind of seeing, not just with physical eyes, but with the eyes of the heart. And this is, in fact, a common theme throughout the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, the biblical authors, led by the Holy Spirit, will use the terminology of seeing with the eyes of the heart. For example, one of the most famous might be Paul, who was the first century church planter and missionary who wrote many letters in our New Testament. One in particular was written to the elders in the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes in to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, and he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? You can see it right there, can't you? Paul writes to the the believers in Ephesus and says, I thank God for you and I pray And in my prayers that I pray for you, I ask that the Lord Jesus Christ would give you the spirit of wisdom, even as he reveals himself in all of his glory, so that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. The eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Now, what does that mean? I'm no doctor, but... I have doctor friends, and I know that our physical heart does not have a physical eye. So what does it mean when the New Testament talks about the eyes of our heart seeing? Or what do we mean if you grew up like I did in the late 90s and early 2000s, and you used to sing this worship chorus, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. What do we mean when we talk about that, when we use those kinds of words? Well, it means coming to see or believe the truth with our mind and our affections and our desires. Seeing with the eyes of our heart means believing the truth with our mind and our affections and our desires. And seeing the reality of who God is and who we are the work of Christ our Redeemer and our need of Him and the world that God has created and His glorious kingdom. It means seeing those things, believing those things with our mind and our affections and our desires. Which is why, if you've been at CCF very long, you probably are used to me saying something like this in sermons quite frequently. If you're here and you're not a Christian, We have been praying that even as we worship together this morning, God would open the eyes of your heart. He would open your eyes that you might understand his glory and his greatness and your need. You might understand the gospel and you might turn and repent and believe as God draws you to himself. So I say things like that from time to time and others who preach here say things like that. It's not because we're ignorant of the fact that your physical heart does not have a physical eye, but it's using language like the Bible uses in hopes that we might come to believe and to see the glory of God, to see the truth of God, to see the work of God through the gospel. It means we're asking God to make Jesus and his work known and believed and cherished. And that For that to happen, according to scripture, that is a work of God alone. Which is why we pray for God to open blind eyes. And we know that according to scripture, the primary instrument by which God opens the eyes of blind hearts is the very word of God. 
Which is why Paul would say in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And even as we're going to see in our text this morning, the illustration of that, how Jesus, God the Son incarnate, uses scripture and through the reading and, and expounding of scripture, the explaining of scripture, hearts are awakened. The eyes of the heart is opened. Now, I share all that up front, kind of front load this, so that as we make our way through the text, you'll be alerted to some of those things, to eyes being opened or eyes being blinded, hearts being warmed and burning within them, that you might see how these two individuals come to know and believe and celebrate the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah which is, not incidentally, the same thing we are praying that God does here in our time together. We wouldn't just leave being informed, oh, that's some interesting truths about Luke chapter 24. But that if you're here this morning, the eyes of your heart would be opened, maybe for the very first time, to see your need for Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are trusting in Jesus, that you would have cause to celebrate and worship with gratitude for the God who opened the eyes of your heart. So, with all that as the foundation of where we're going, let's begin here in verse 13. This is the very same day that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's a Sunday. Verse 13, the word of our Lord says, the very day two of them We're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking, discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So we're picking up on Easter Sunday. Of all the ways that you could spend A Sunday afternoon and evening, this was, for these travelers, likely the best Sunday afternoon of their entire lives. If we don't know the identity of these two travelers, it's possible, maybe even likely, that they were husband and wife. Maybe two friends were not told that their identity isn't important here. But we do know that they're on their way from Jerusalem down to Emmaus, which is about seven miles would have taken them likely a little over two hours. And as they're walking, they're talking and discussing together about all of the things that have just happened in Jerusalem over the last three days. Or more specifically, the things that have happened in Jerusalem that very morning. And as they're talking and discussing, it's likely they probably were even a bit, a bit, uh, you know, not paying attention to the things that were going on around them because they were locked in conversation. What has just happened this morning? And, and Jesus is alive and we, we don't know. And what has happened to his body? And all of a sudden, as they're talking, Jesus joins them. Again, there's so many things we would love to know. Maybe he was a faster walker than they were. And he just overtook them on the road and then slowed down. Or maybe he, he j- came from an adjoining road. Or maybe he just appeared. We're not sure, but we do know that Jesus joins them, but they don't recognize him. Now, can you just imagine, let's just step back for a second from the text. 
Just think about how strange this would be if this happened to you. You're walking along, talking with a friend, and all of a sudden, a complete stranger just kind of joins you, shoulder to shoulder, and just kind of looks at you, and you're thinking, okay, is he going to keep going? Is he going to pass? Maybe, maybe these two travelers slowed down just a little bit to like let this, pa- this other traveler go by, but Jesus kind of just maintains their pace for all we know. That would seem a bit strange, but then Jesus asks them a question. He asked them in verse 17, what are you talking about? And they stood still looking sad. What are you talking about? Notice the response of these two men when Jesus asked what they were talking about. They were surprised. In fact, they were so surprised that they stopped walking. Luke does give us that detail. It's an important detail. They stopped walking and they looked Sad. Like, where in the world have you been? They're talking about the thing that was, had consumed, right, social media of the first century. Jesus' death, and now the fact that Jesus' body is gone, and now some people are even saying that Jesus is alive. And some people are talking about angels who have appeared. And that's all that anyone is talking about. And Jesus has the audacity to ask them, what are you talking about? No wonder they stopped. They were so in shock. And they looked sad. Where do we even begin? Is this man in front of us so ignorant, so clueless that he doesn't know? I was trying to think of a corollary for us today and and maybe the closest thing would be if you had happened to be living in England this past May 6th and you were maybe in a in a coffee shop or you're drinking tea and you're drinking tea with some of your your friends there and you happen to overhear some other conversation that was going on in the cafe from other people around you you go up to one of the tables and you pull up a chair and you sit down with complete strangers and you say Like, what is it that you're talking about? You seem excited or you seem very intense or very adamant in what you're speaking about. What are you talking about? You say, like, it's May 6th. It's the coronation day of a new king. Like, where have you been? Don't you know what happens today? And then for you to respond, what happens today? So Cleopas, maybe the bravest of the two, or the one that took the most pity, we don't know, answers, verse 18, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? Why did Jesus ask them what they were talking about? Why did Jesus ask them what things? Especially when Jesus already knew the answer. And this is a lot like when Jesus is teaching on the hillside in Judea and it got later and later in the day and the people were getting hungry and the disciples who are perceptive realize it's getting late in the day and the people are getting hungry. And so what do they do? They go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, 
Like, cut it off now. Like, your sermon's gone too long. Everyone's getting hungry. It's getting late in the day. Send everybody home to get something to eat. And Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus knew that they didn't have enough food. He knew that they could not possibly feed this crowd. But he wanted them to realize that. He wanted them to turn to him for help. He was testing their faith. And I think Jesus is doing the very same thing here. He's testing them to see what these two travelers really believed about the man who was getting all the attention in the news of the day. As an aside, what would you have said if you were Jesus here? Don't you recognize me? Don't you know who I am? I think Jesus can teach us something even here about evangelism, the way we share the gospel. It's often more helpful if we ask questions first. Find out where someone is in their story to find out what they believe. You see, all too often we can... We can meet someone, we can be in a dialogue with someone, and we can see like the smallest you know, crack in the door or glimmer of light uh, of someone being even remotely open to hearing the gospel, and we just immediately take off full steam. When sometimes it might be more beneficial to ask questions. Like, what do you believe? Why do you believe that? How did you come to that conclusion? How's that been working for you? What happens if you're wrong? And then use what we've learned and the answers to those questions as we apply scripture and apply the gospel. And we see Jesus doing this throughout his public ministry. He's asking questions, questions that expose the heart just as he does here. And so these two men begin to, or men and women or whoever they are, they begin to share about this individual Jesus who they thought to be a prophet and who did amazing signs, but who was executed by the Jewish religious leaders. And how now, after three days, some have reported that his body is missing and others are reporting that Jesus is alive. Just look at verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, So this is their answer when he says, what things are you talking about? Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before the Lord and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, and here's their heart, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had even seen vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Remember, according to verse 16, they are kept from seeing or recognizing that the man that they are talking to is in fact Jesus. This is the best episode of Undercover Boss ever. (laughs) And they have just divulged 
the longing of their heart that they had hoped that this Jesus was actually the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer. We'd hoped that this man would rescue our people, but then he died. And now his body is missing. We don't know what to think anymore. And I wonder, have you been there as well? You'd heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd hoped that he would do something in your life or make your life easier. Maybe ease the pain of a broken relationship or help meet your expectations of life. Maybe you'd hope that he would restore your marriage or heal you of a disease, but he didn't do what you expected him to do. He didn't answer your prayers in the ways you thought he would or hoped he would or thought he should, and now you don't know what to believe. How does Jesus respond? Verse 25. He said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus responds to these two travelers saying, don't you get it? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You see, this is not a fact problem. This, as Jesus makes clear, is a heart problem. The eyes of their heart are not seeing. They're blind. They failed to see what was happening all around them and see how everything happening around them was what the prophets had pointed towards for hundreds of years. The prophets repeatedly predicted that the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer would suffer like this, that he would be killed, that he would rise from the dead. And now Jesus could have said these words and then immediately walked away, but he didn't. And this should tell us something about the character of Christ. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our shortcomings. He knows that we, according to Psalm 103, are dust. And so he starts at the very beginning with Moses and the books of Moses, the first books of the Old Testament. And Jesus works through the Old Testament showing these two travelers, these two who were slow of heart to believe, showing them how the Old Testament was preparing the way for Christ. Like, wouldn't you have loved to just listen in? Maybe to draw close enough to be within earshot of hearing Jesus. This is the, the goat of all Bible studies, right? The greatest of all time. As mile after mile, Jesus worked through the Old Testament, showing them how all of it prepared the world for his arrival and for his work. 
That mostly would have had probably two hours together if Jesus had joined them very early in the journey. Two hours isn't enough time to work through every passage of the Old Testament. So wouldn't you have loved to have known which passages Jesus used? But I think we shouldn't miss here the fact that Jesus, God the Son incarnate, gave them Scripture. This is huge. Jesus didn't lead by telling them about his experience. He took them to Scripture. And we see Jesus doing this throughout his earthly ministry. For example, when he began his public ministry and he was led by, by the enemy into the, to the desert to be tempted for 40 days. And as he's tempted, how does he meet every single temptation? He meets every single temptation with Scripture. This is a good reminder that the power and the usefulness of Scripture wasn't just in the Old Covenant era before the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it's also for the New Covenant era as well. Like We cannot escape the fact that Jesus had a high view of Scripture. And he takes them back to the Bible. In fact, there was something about Jesus' teaching, something about his divine way of opening the scriptures that according to verse 32 made the hearts of these two travelers burn within them. You could sense that something was happening. But still, they don't recognize Jesus yet. In verse 28, so they drew near the village to which they were going He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Verse 31. And their eyes were opened. They recognized him. He vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So the day is late, the darkness is closing in, and they arrive, these two travelers at their destination. They're asking Jesus to join them. Jesus is acting as though he's going to pass by. No, come in and stay with us. They sit down to a meal together, and before they eat, Jesus breaks the bread and prays giving thanks to the Father. And at that very moment, verse 31 says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. The symbolism here is significant. You see, in the Old Testament, God the Father provided food for his people daily. He provided bread for them in the desert as they traveled. Later, Jesus would teach us to pray, asking God for our daily bread. 
In fact, Jesus himself in John chapter 6 refers to himself as the bread of life. And on this night, he takes the bread and he breaks it. He gives thanks. Probably a lot like a few nights before when Jesus was gathered together with his closest followers. And he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Which is our pattern every time we take the Lord's Supper as well. The bread of life, the very sustenance and provision for salvation that God has given to his people who was broken on the cross, now reveals himself in the breaking of the bread. We would, again, love to know so many more details. How did the Lord reveal himself in the breaking of the bread? Was it all of a sudden these two travelers who had heard stories about God's provision of manna in the desert, maybe even that was something that Jesus touched on when he worked his way through their Old Testament in their Bible Bible study? Maybe they knew of of already the, the word that had gotten out of three days before when Jesus had gathered together with his followers and broken bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And now as Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and they think, now we know. We don't know how our triune God opened the eyes of these individuals, of these travelers, but he did it in the breaking of the bread. I think there's also something else important here for us to not miss. In verse 28 Jesus acts as though he is about to pass by the town and continue on his way. And then shortly after that, he reveals himself to these people. Which is reminiscent of other times when the true identity of God has been revealed right after he passes by. They think back just a year or two or three before this in Mark chapter 6. Jesus' disciples are in a boat out on the lake and there's a raging storm. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And in Mark, Mark records for us that Jesus was about to pass them by. Where? We don't know. But he's about to pass them by when they cry out to him and they recognize Jesus, he gets in the boat and he reveals his true identity and they fall down and they worship. They realize he's not a ghost. He's not just a mirage. He, in fact, is Jesus, God the Son. There's another famous time when God passes by and then reveals his true identity. All the way back in Exodus chapter 33, Moses is pleading with God, show me your glory. Reveal to me who you are. And God puts Moses in the crack in the rock. He says, I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass by you. But you can't even gaze upon my face. You can't even gaze upon the fullness of my glory. So you're just going to see going to see a reflection of that. You're going to see the back of my glory. 
And as God passes by, he declares his identity and his name to Moses. These passing by moments are important. We see it here as well. Jesus is about to pass by to continue on. And then he reveals himself for who he truly is, that he is, in fact, Christ. And these two don't merely just acknowledge, oh yeah, that's the Jesus guy that we've been hearing so much about. But given the fact that they speak about their hearts burning within them, and they talk about the way Jesus opened the scriptures, pointing out that he, in fact, is the Christ, they're These two travelers are doing more than just acknowledging Jesus' human identity. They're acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah who is, in fact, alive. The very one that they had hoped for, Jesus said, guess what? I am him, and they believe. And so how did that happen? How did they come to believe that Jesus is the Christ who is alive? Answer, their eyes were opened to recognize Jesus. The opening of their eyes, again, just so that we're all clear, was not just physical, but it was spiritual. The eyes of their heart was opened so that what they saw with their eyes made sense. This is Jesus. He's more than just a man. He is the very one that we had hoped for in verse 21 that would redeem our people, be the one that that God the Father would send to us. Friends, we hope and pray that that happens every time we gather together as a church family, that blind hearts would be opened to see, oh yeah, there is a God who rules and reigns who has created all things, who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And I I now see, because the eyes of my heart have been opened, that I am not rightfully acknowledging him and worshiping him, but rather I've, I've rebelled against him. I've fought against him. I've wandered from his truth. And I know that my only provision now, because the eyes of my heart have been opened for salvation, my only provision for salvation is the work that Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. He died in my place because I am a sinner in need of salvation. You see, we can't reason our way to those truths. We ultimately need the eyes of our hearts opened, just like Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened to see the glory of God and the joy that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the reality, in fact, that we declare when we sing, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. And the sin that had promised joy and life led me to the grave. I had no hope 
that you, God, would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, if you had not opened the eyes of my heart first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cross, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. You led me. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know from you is grace. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is our life. Like, how do we sing that? We sing that because it's true. Because the only way we are saved is to have the eyes of our heart opened that we might know and see the glory of God and the depth of our need for him to see the only way of salvation is through the provision of Jesus Christ. That we might repent and believe. That's how we behold God's love displayed. That's why we pray and sing sometimes, open the eyes of our hearts. Open the eyes of the hearts of my friend, of my family member, of my neighbor, of my coworker, that they might see. You see, we who were once like these two travelers, foolish and slow of heart to believe, were given sight. We're given eyes to see. You see, the same God who opened the eyes of these two travelers is very much working in very much the same way today. Opening eyes that are blinded. What about you this morning? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death? And if not, our prayer has been that as we sing and as we pray and as God's word is proclaimed, he, through his word, would be opening blind hearts. That your heart this morning might burn within you. Or even, to use John Wesley's words, that your heart might be strangely warmed within you. As you come to realize the glory of God and the nature of your sin and the glory of Jesus Christ as your only hope. That you would turn by faith and trust in him for salvation. To trust in him as Savior and Lord. And if you're here this morning and the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, I pray that texts like this would cause us to walk in greater gratitude and thankfulness and joy, recognizing that the reason you can see with the eyes of your heart has nothing to do with your merit or your effort. It has everything to do with the grace of God who's chosen to give you sight. That ought to fuel our worship 
and our joy. And it ought to motivate us to pray that God would do the same in the lives of the other people around us and in the lives, even as we heard this morning, of the unreached all around our globe. And you notice how the video we watched opened? The greatest need of the world in the world is lostness. And lostness was defined as blindness, a blindness to the glory of God, a blindness to our sin, a blindness to our need, a blindness to the work of Christ. <coughs> May it motivate us, even in these next eight days, that we would pray that God would do the same, would do the same work he did here in the lives of people all around this community and all around the globe for his glory, for our eternal joy. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? Let's pray. Father, two things we ask this morning. In light of your word, in light of your great work through the power of your Holy Spirit among us, First, Father, we ask that even in this room, if there are those who are listening in online who are not trusting in you, that even today, even now, even in this moment, you would be opening blind eyes, that they might turn and trust and believe and find forgiveness for sin and reconciliation with you the joy of being adopted into your family, of being known, and one day spending eternity with you. Father, we also pray, secondly, for those whose eyes have been opened. You would give us a gratitude and a thankfulness and a humility and a joy. And that we would be fervent in prayer. That you might do that same work people all around us and all around the world. We pray this in the name of our risen King, Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.